Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists and continue in our journey in respect to the convergence of technology and wetland science. I'm your host, Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we'll hear from our panel of professional wetland scientists about their experience with integrating tech into their workflow. We'll touch on the different ways that software integrates into the everyday productivity of field scientists and GIS professionals. In addition, some of our panelists will discuss how the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of new tech. Without any further ado, let's kick off the panel discussion. And so our first question is, how has COVID-19, the pandemic, how has it impacted your business or your organization's use of adopting an existing and emerging technologies? And how do you suppose that will inspire further innovation and developments in the future? So I'm going to start with Amber down in the Gulf. Hey. So I think amidst all of the chaos of the pandemic, a really positive byproduct um, has been, you know, innovation and that my company has, you know, used this time to kind of catapult us into using this, you know, different forms of technology in order to do two things, better interact with our clients and also collect data in a more efficient and safe way. And, and it's interesting because Previously, I think my company was a little shy to jump into some of these technologies and COVID's actually allowed us to sort of forced us into to this new experience. And I have a couple of examples uh, that I'll share briefly. One being I have a compliance monitoring project down here in Louisiana. Uh, my inspector has been literally, you know, taking his notes, filling out his inspection form, you know, using a pen and a piece of paper. And the client's always been shy to accept sort of uh, new technological ways of collecting that data just from a cost efficiency standpoint. But because things have been so, it's been so critical to keep my, my sub safe recently, uh, we're going to be transitioning to, it's called Survey123 for ArcGIS, which is going to allow us to collect that data real time without needing any, you know, remote satellite and then it'll immediately get to us so it'll be happening quicker and more efficiently and um, this is just you know one example others being you know that we're using webex now in order to, to visit with clients which is you know a more cost efficient way to engage and absolutely we will continue to use this this type of technology even after covid is is behind us so yeah, it's exciting times. I think really positive byproduct of, of kind of a chaotic, sucky situation. Great, thank you, Amber. Yeah, uh, Kim, how about you from the kind of the nonprofit side? Right, I'll kind of talk about it from the Society of Wetland Scientists side. I'm the chair of the webinar committee. Interesting timing with having Jeremy have, having done our last webinar, but mostly I want to focus on you know how it's impacted our e-communication and just kind of our connection and with other, our wetland community. And SWS started our webinars back in 2015, and uh, we've been using the go-to, and we've been recently talking about ways that we could improve the program. And this kind of catapulted us into having to figure out ways to do this e-connection with the members and others that were interested in wetland science. 
And so we are doing a number of different things, but we are switching to the Zoom platform, which everybody is becoming much, much more comfortable with because we've been doing this during the time where we've been in isolation or stay at home. And I have been teleworking for six weeks now, but uh, so all the things that I am working on with SWS are going through now. We have a Zoom platform for that, for our webinars. Um, also, SWS as an organization is trying to adjust to the fact that we won't be having our annual meeting this year, whether it be postponed or canceled. And so there's talk about how we can still try to connect during that time. We, you know, we're talking on the webinar committee, how we can make get that connection. And so I think that that's kind of changed things that we, things that we were kind of iffy about, uh, we've gone headlong into them because we had to. I know a lot of times when there's new technology, I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I know how to do it the old way. I don't really need the new way. And then if I'm forced into it, I say, you know, this was way better, more efficient. And so I think that that is really one of the, the big things is being able to connect and using these different platforms that have kind of catapulted us into it. Work-wise, I work for a state agency, and uh, we were using Microsoft Teams. It was available to us before. Never really did it because we didn't have to, and now we are relying on it all the time, uh, teleworking. So we're doing Teams meetings, and it's actually really useful. I was actually doing ArcGIS and Envy today with a coworker of mine, and he was letting me control, do the controls, and kind of giving me a little tutorial. So um, it's, it's amazing the kind of things that we can do. Thank you for asking. Great, thanks, Kim. Well, Rick, how about how about you from Wetland Association side? Yeah, well, hi. Uh, <laughs> these are surely strange times for sure. But yeah, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Kim said uh, in the sense that we have had to look into new ways to communicate and conduct meetings, and we've been doing zooming a lot and learning a lot about that. But the other thing we've talked about too was how to kind of keep engaged with the organization, keep it engaged. And so we have thought about doing webinars. We haven't specifically done any yet, but we've got some scheduled. We worked with the Water Resource Research Institute here in Raleigh. They have an annual conference every March, uh, which didn't happen, but we approached them and said, we'd love to work with you to maybe schedule some of the papers, especially the ones we're interested in was the wetlands papers. We've been a sponsor of that conference for about three years now. So they said, hey, that's not a bad idea. And so it's, it's working. Um, they've done one session that wasn't specifically two wetlands, but we're going to have two wetland sessions coming up at the end of May and June. And so that's good. You know, that's a good way to kind of keep the organization visible and our supporters more engaged also. Another example is that we did get a, um, on the monitoring side, which I can never seem to get out of my life and probably don't really want to, uh, we did get a grant to uh, start a citizen science volunteer wetland monitoring program. And with COVID-19, it, it pretty much got stopped in its tracks. We never, we, we got a certain point, but we never got to the, uh, start doing the field work that we need to do and things like that. But it has gotten me and others thinking about how we might do some things differently, like more remote sensing and greater use of maybe drones. We have talked about doing drones just because they're, they'd be fun for sure. But uh, yeah, we've been talking about doing drone flyovers and seeing how we can use that data and so forth. And then the other thing too, just one more thing is that I know when I worked for the state, uh, we collected a huge amount of wetland data from 200 sites across the state. 
and it's vegetation data, it's soil data, it's amphibian data, it's macroinvertebrate data, it's hydrology data. And one of the things we can never really do is analyze the data in any reasonable way because we had to almost get ready to start on the next grant before we could actually get there. So we just ended up summarizing things a little bit more. And uh, I think some real data, you know, sort of um, AI kinds of tools to look at the data and, and pick out patterns and trends and things like that would be really great to consider. And here I go, collected more monitoring data again. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Rick. So things are changing and shifting. So I guess you know, the next thing I'd like to pose is, you know, how how are companies and organizations adapting their workflow and management around changes in technology? So I thought maybe we'd start with uh, with Megan from US Fish and Wildlife. Yeah, that's an excellent question, Jeremy. And I have a lot to say, but I'm going to have to limit myself because uh, NWI, of course, has been around for over 40 years. And so we've seen a lot of technological change. So in the beginning, we had an army of folks that were drawing lines using pens on mylar overlays, uh, looking at analog uh, aerial photography. And then of course, now we have folks working digitally with digital imagery, sometimes it's satellite imagery and they're working within a GIS environment. Um, we used to be limited to having individuals check for, for quality. Now we have automated verification tools. We used to be limited to um, folks using pieces of paper out in the field, and, and now we've got our iPads, and we've got Collector, and we've got Survey123, and um, we're, we're completely geared up uh, in the field. Uh, we have changed not just the way we operate, but the types of ancillary data that we use. We use base imagery to create the maps, so that's usually the aerial photographs or the fine spatial resolution multispectral satellite data. But in terms of the ancillary data, you know, we used to use stereo pairs and now we use LIDAR data. And so things have changed quite a bit. And I think that the um, quality of our data has improved and the speed at which we create the data has improved, but we still don't have the magic button. You know, it still is not a, a purely automated process. We still need those, we still need those people. Um, to, to create our maps, partially because our classification system is just so detailed. So we are working to increase automation, but we are still very much a, a paired, manual, automated production shop. That's great. I mean, yeah, we're going to have a whole another conversation around right. that at some point for sure. But thank you, Megan. Sure. Let's go over to Scott from the, from the consulting side. Yeah, definitely from the consulting side, just in... The last few years alone has been been huge. We used to go to having paper maps for everything, similar to what Megan was saying. Is everything you went out there with was your soil mapping, your NWI mapping. Everything was in your hand. You were sketching things and then going back into the office. Well, now with a lot of collector and survey one, two, three, and things like that, and on an iPad, I can have five or six different crews at the same time, you have all your due diligence right there in your hand, things that you had to do a lot before and after, which cuts down on a lot of time in the office, especially if you're very fast paced and you have people all over in different states working, 
And now with cloud-based products where you can sync your data instantly, so project managers can capture and see what you're doing, offer up and maybe catch mistakes. And I think that's been the big thing is we'll find that you forgot photos for a site or you forgot this on a site and before you leave the site, drive three hours away and don't go back, we can kind of catch a few of those things now going into it, which is which is huge for us and huge as far as a QAQC standpoint. So it's definitely helped progress and make things better and cleaner and just a better overall product for, for everyone. Great, thank you, Scott. So I wanna kind of shift gears here about a little bit and go more specific into some of the mapping advances. So just wanna hear from a couple of our organizations in terms of significant changes to your technology in respect to wetland science, delineations, monitoring, mitigation, restoration, et cetera. So I'd love to hear from, from Daniel first from, from Esri. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, there's a lot to dive into here, uh, but I'll try to just hit on, on some of the high points. I think that the biggest advance from, uh, from, from where I'm sitting is this advent of WebGIS. For most people are familiar with Esri software through ArcMap or, or maybe even ArcMap Pro. That actually can be visualized as one node in a vast ecosystem of connected maps, apps, and data. Uh, which then support a company-wide workflow from field work into surveys and, and beyond, and, uh, and really adds a lot of improvements and efficiency gains uh, and supports collaboration. Another really big asset, I think, has been the Living Atlas, which is an authoritative, uh, curated group of data from various sources uh, that is made available to, to people on the uh, WebGIS platform. Uh, so as someone who has made many base maps throughout the day, this, this is such a resource to be able to not have to look back and find the most recent version of, of any given type of data. It's all right there. And an easy to visualize example of this WebGIS is how data that could be gone and gotten in the field can be synced to an organization's authoritative data and then made available to the rest of the company to, to use in whatever their particular workflows are. Shout out to Ecobot and all the hard work that they've done. I think that it's a great example of integrating with Esri platform now that they the data that can be gotten in Ecobot uh, can be pushed into an organization's uh, ArcGIS online uh, and authoritative data. So I think that that collaboration and this ecosystem of different uh, maps and apps is, is from my perspective, the, the biggest advance. Great, thank you, Daniel. Well, let's jump down to Jesse from Upstream. Yeah, thanks for having me. So kind of the two main ways that Upstream helps in this regard is synthesizing all available commercial and public domain satellite data. And these satellites have been collecting information for the last several decades. And so kind of the primary ways in which we're working with folks is one, you know, before you go to the field is how can you see the most recent image from your site? And then understand, you know, how has that changed over the last couple of years to then monitor those ecosystems? And the satellites are capturing just, you know, true color, what you're used to seeing imagery, but also a lot of information about vegetation and water patterns. So we can automatically analyze what is the history of vegetation changes on this property. And then if you did an intervention, are you yielding the expected outcomes to be able to monitor that a little bit more consistently uh, prior to getting to the field? 
So those are kind of the two main ways in which we're thinking about alleviating some of the challenges people are having when you can't actually get to the field um, and being able to monitor remotely. Great, thank you, Jesse. Well, now when I a little bit closer to the ground, uh, Daniel, you come in with that on, on drones, please. Uh, sure, and so in general, I think some of the biggest changes with drones have happened in the last few years and they're gonna accelerate from now on because I mean, you think back to 2016 is when most people really started significant drone programs. And then, you know, you had large organizations with about a two year tail on that. So you've got in the last two years, people really starting to adopt drones. And, you know, just from my personal experience, when I started flying projects in 2016, I had a drone that was, you know, three feet wide and cost almost $10,000. You put all this stuff together and, you know, that's not including the sensors and all that stuff. And then, you know, it was a huge all day event to go fly a site and, you know, Last week, I flew five sites in one day, and my drone's a little bit bigger than my phone. And so I think that's going to continue to, to change. And another thing that is, I'm really excited about as far as innovation in the drone space is, uh, you know, LiDAR sensors. And I've had a lot of people talk about that. And, you know, I'm really excited that everybody's been mentioning workflow because nothing is more important than how stuff fits in your workflow. If it doesn't work for you, why are you doing it? You know, it makes sense to think about these things ahead of time. But you know, you've got providers going with LiDAR sensors that are, you know, not $200,000, but might be $2,000, giving you, say, a five centimeter spec instead of a three centimeter spec or, you know, something like that, to where you can be in the field. This is, you know, how I envision it. Fly your drone before you start. Process it while you're getting set up and maybe getting your flagging stuff ready, getting your vest on, starting out your day. And after you've already started walking the site, you're going to come back and switch out your gear and you're going to have a mobile LiDAR of your entire site in the middle of the first day. I mean, on a four week job or a four month job or four hour job, it's going to be cost effective and it's going to save you time and it's going to increase the deliverables and the quality of it. And it's going to allow you to charge a better price point if you're you know, a private provider, if you're a public provider, it's going to get you data um, where you would never really get it before. Not only that with the mobile LiDAR, but they're just regular RGB cameras. I mean, I've been flying wetland sites for a long time. And if you continue that on a set pace, and this is true of any industry, you're going to extract things that you didn't know you could extract. There's data there that you're not seeing or the way that it plays into, say, your field points or maybe on you know things that are buttoned up on your project and things like that. You just never know what you're going to find. I do a lot of environmental due diligence. And, you know, you always want to see, you know, we can kind of tell where the stream, you know, you get the NWI and you get the NHD, you put the drone imagery together and it just works. And they use ArcGIS Pro for that. So thank you, Ezra. But I'm really thankful for the drone space. I think it's innovating. I usually tell people that there's a significant industry change every six to eight months. So, you know, don't anticipate what you're getting or what you're starting now is going to be the same thing you're going to be doing two years from now. You know, if you're not changing every day, you're kind of going to get behind. So that's really exciting for me. It keeps me busy. I have pretty good job security there. Um, but anyway, I really encourage everybody to use drones. They're the best. I get really excited about it. So I'll try to limit my time. But anyway, there's a lot of innovation there and we can spend some more time on that in another, another webinar. Great. Thank you, Daniel. And we're going to, we're going to meet in Northern Georgia sometime and have a dog fight with our, with our, with our drones. <laughs> nice. well, I have insurance, so it's fine. All right, I don't. So, but mine's also an old school tank. It's gonna be like a World War II era version versus whatever you have. I have to pull my uh, my Inspire out of the closet. <laughs> All right. So I just want to kind of flip it back. You know, Megan, how do you think? How do you think some of 
these advances in technology may impact uh, the way we would conduct wetland science from like a data perspective and also from a uh, modeling or planning perspective? That's a deep question, Jeremy. <laughs> I could take that in a lot of different directions. I, I may have to just pick one. So you mentioned modeling and data collection. I guess um, where I'm most comfortable is, of course, mapping. So I would say that we have already begun to do that, and we've been doing it through time. And, um, you know, I mentioned some of the ways, you know, we've been from analog to, to digital. I mean, that was a big jump. We've been from aerial photographs uh, to satellite images. That was a big jump. One thing that I didn't mention is the way that we distribute data. So, of course, we used to send out hard copy maps. People would send us, an, they wouldn't send us an email, would they? Gosh, they'd actually call us on the phone. Um, or they'd send us a letter and we'd send them uh, a hard copy map. But now, of course, we've got the, the mapper uh, and folks can see our data and use our data um, real time via our mapper. We also have web services and we offer a function where folks can print PDF maps of our data. And so it took us about 15 years between 1975 and 1990 for folks to print um, 1 million maps or for us to print 1 million maps and send them to our users. Um, but within the last four and a half years, uh, using the print function on our online mapper, folks were able to print themselves 1 million maps. So in less than a third of the time, we were able to distribute the, the same amount of information. So we are definitely reaping the benefits of technological um, advances at NWI, one of the things that we are focusing in on now is how can we pull in better ancillary data so that we can not only um, map more efficiently, um, so save costs, but we can also produce higher quality data. Uh, and so we've been we've been working on that. And of course, we've decided to pull in LIDAR. LIDAR is huge. Um, so far, we've been primarily using it as um, just kind of background imagery, uh, just as a, as a plain dem. I'd like to use more topographic metrics. Um, I'd like to get more advanced in terms of the, the metrics that we use, you know, TWIs and um, whatever we can pull in. I think that sometimes um, when you let the computer analyze the data, um, it can come up with information that you can't necessarily see with your, with your eyes. And I think that's definitely true of LIDAR. Um, another way that we're looking to pull in uh, advancements uh, is that we still haven't completed mapping in Alaska, and that's kind of our last frontier. Uh, and it's really tough to map in Alaska. I mean, partly because we're just limited in the imagery that's available to us. I mean, for many years, we were limited to, to spot imagery. And it was just pulled in from all sorts of different dates. And it was color balanced in a weird way. And it was just less than ideal on many levels. Uh, and so what we've done now is we've worked with researchers from University of Maryland to pull in um, a combination of um, Sentinel, or well, actually to analyze Sentinel data in part using the Landsat historic record, partially through Google Earth Engine to derive what we're calling um, subpixel water fraction, which is not just binary information on inundated, non-inundated, 
but um, percent of the pixel that's inundated. And so you're um, able to resolve much smaller water features that way. And we're using that as a really critical ancillary data that not only allows, allows us to more accurately map wetlands, but we're hoping that it will allow us to avoid um, field work and um, minimize our um, helicopter and plane time because the helicopter and plane time is really expensive. Um, so by using the satellite imagery, um, we could hopefully um, sustain accuracy and save costs. Great, thank you. I know I don't want to cut out field time, but you know, <laughs> mostly <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna just change gears here a little bit because one of the questions that we've been getting from folks in the audience is around the accuracy of R1s and what types of real-time corrections are available, how accurate they are. And so I, I wanted to give Adam an opportunity to speak to that from the consulting side. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. So in my experience, it's it, it's pretty accurate. I mean, for, for my uh, field applications that I use on the consulting side, I usually get that that submeter accuracy, which which you know for for that device is is pretty ideal, especially for the price point too. I, I mean that's a that's a huge factor for the R1. It comes at a at a really nice price point, and it's it's super durable and it's accurate for for you know the applications of of delineation, and that that submeter accuracy is 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 really fantastic. Um, and, and certainly too, I, I think that that there are limitations to to most of the the GPS units we're going to use. So multipath and and canopy cover is certainly going to impact accuracy and and how long we need to stay at a point. But you know, compared to open meadow areas, so taking that into consideration, and I think everyone who has used the the seven thousand series for for uh, an XT or an XH is is used to that. Um, but the but the R one is is does really perform well. Maybe some some low hanging fruit here, so to speak, to to keep in mind. It's super rugged. You, you can a, attest to that as well, Jeremy. I, I think you put it through its paces as well. Super rugged. Uh, for me, I can use the the R one uh, a full day uh, without it being charged. I mean, that's a full charge and a full day on that. The one thing I keep in mind. And I think a lot of people are in this realm, but but maybe just a, a little a little hint is when you're using your device as field scientists, we're we're in the field. Make sure that you bring a battery backup for your device that you're using, because for me, uh, you know, you're going to run your R1, which is fantastic. But when your smartphone or your tablet goes down, you know, midway through, so a, a lot of times I bring a, a charged battery backup um, that I can use in the field you know, just stuff like that. The other thing too is how you protect your your smartphone or your tablet in the field, you know, whether that be a protective case, waterproof like that. So, you know, stuff like that kind of, it seems trivial to to just on a, on a, on a low level basis, but really that's something that, that really comes into play because we're running a lot of different apps, um, not just collector on our smartphones or tablets. Um, a lot of us are using a lot of different apps at the same time. So really be cognizant of, uh, of, of your device that's actually collecting the data. It's gonna, it's gonna drain your battery pretty quick. So, but overall it's um, you know, pr pretty accurate piece of equipment that's, that's really fantastic, so. Great, I know battery wise for myself using the R1 in the field, if I'm working hours like I've worked with some of you who are on this panel out in the field, if we're working 
12 or 14 hours in the field, we definitely need that booster charger. I'm not working uh, union hours here. So um, so what, what I wanted to do is now switch and go over to the, the hardware provider side. And Darren, have you come in in respect to the R1 as well? Well, thanks. Um, I think Adam covered a lot of uh, good information there. It's good to see that uh, you're achieving, uh, for the most part, the accuracy that you that you require. Adam brought up a really good point. GPS and GNSS technology, we're still receiving very weak radio signals from 11,000 plus miles in space. You do have to be aware, um, the R1 is a nice, you know, nearly a playing card pack sized G GNSS receiver. And it's tempting to throw it in a backpack, the top pouch on your backpack, or, you know, throw it in a shirt pocket or a vest pocket. But the best practice would be to make sure that it does have an unobstructed view of the sky so that you do uh, get the accuracies that uh, you're expecting in the field. Um, a lot of times people uh, connect to a real-time source and there's a couple of, of ones. Uh, there's a free one in the U.S. called WAS um, that, I'm, that probably most people are aware of. Trimble also has a real-time satellite delivered correction system. It does require a subscription, but it allows your R1 to get down to about the 30 centimeter to, to one foot accuracies. I'm not sure what is needed in this industry, but it sounds like submeters uh, quite practical for, for most users. Awesome, thank you, Darren. Certainly appreciate you joining us here. Sure. Um, so I wanna pivot a little bit and talk about, you know, the use of say ArcMap versus ArcPro versus using uh, open source type data. And so I wanted to see if either Todd or Scott, I, we didn't actually get to check in on this. Do either of you have experience using the ArcPro or ArcGIS online? Or are you guys using ArcMap? What, maybe both of you guys could take yourselves off and just chime in a little bit there. This is Todd. <laughs> I, yeah, we're, we're basically using the ArcMap in the office at this point. We, Esri's actually offered some online courses on ArcPro right now and so we've got some of our staff taking those looking at transitioning to that been really impressed with the projects the the product so far uh, but we use ArcMap for everything uh, maybe something most people don't use it for is we actually use it for wetland mitigation design we're making full engineering plans using arc uh, which is uh, can be somewhat of a challenge but it's what we what we're we're good at what we're used to and we're at, we're not using CAD for that. We're drawing full set full engineering set plans uh, in the Arc platform. So uh, yeah. I have not used the the open source software at okay. all. Yeah, I know some people are using uh, like QGIS too, and have had some mm -hmm. pretty good success with that. What are you guys using, Scott? Um, we're actually transitioning more away from ArcMap. We still do both. We do a lot of ArcMap for our day to day, just because it's a quick, clean map system that we can get. Uh, what we like using our pro for is that we can edit things live and yep. that's been very helpful we can also move large data sets quicker it doesn't bog down the computers as much we have a lot of guys that remote into a computer and pull things that way so instead of having to bring everything down and save it to a local source they can kind of do it live and that's really helped us like i said you know you go from one site to the next and we can pull things down quicker and check things and it's really sped us up quite a bit. Um, so we're fully starting to transition into that since we use ArcGIS online a lot and, and things like that. It seems to work really well for us. All right, great. Thanks, Scott. Well, you know, Daniel, one of the things that I hear come, uh, Daniel Martin, 
one of the things I hear come up in conversations a lot, I even see some of the questions coming in, you know, just in respect to, you know, like, you know, efficiency of the different tools that are available, but also costs, like why would someone choose to use software as a service versus, you know, using, you know, an off-the-shelf software? So I think that the best that I could, uh, that I could say from personal experience is that I have found the price points have lowered significantly over the last five or 10 years, uh, while the functionality has increased. But ultimately it comes down to a case-by-case -case decision that needs to be made of looking at it holistically to see uh, if the efficiency gains of, of software such as like Esri software is, is actually going to offset that price. And I think that oftentimes the decision, you know, that the answer might be yes, but I would advocate everyone to, to do the analysis yourself uh, and look at that. Great. Thank you, Daniel. And Jesse, I know you guys are offering software as a service as well, uh, to some extent. So how would you, uh, how would you handle a question like that in terms of looking at whether, you know, it's off the shelf software or if it's, you know, something that is more of a service based? Yeah, great question. I would echo a lot of what um, Daniel had said. Uh, similarly, it's thinking about what are the specific workflows that you're looking to automate. Um, and so what we try to do from the upstream perspective is what are similar workflows across a lot of different organizations so we can build a uniform process that many people can um, can utilize. And then if there's specific customization, then let's try to answer questions that a lot of other people are also asking. So it doesn't have to be a one-off, really specific, uh, really expensive cost. Um, yeah, I think that's the short answer. Great, thank you. And so I just wanna switch back over to like more from the consulting side and see, you know, Adam from, you know, your perspective, you know, when you're looking at things as an educator and thinking about people getting out in the field more and how they're mapping and projecting things, you know, where do you see some of the differences in terms of, you know, off the shelf software versus software as a service playing in? Um, for me, I, I think that as I wouldn't, um, I mean, I certainly have experience when it comes to the GIS, um, uh, platforms that I use um, online, um, but certainly the support has always been, you know, a functionality for for me that I use. Um, uh, I don't have years and years and years of of experience when it comes to to GIS, um, but but certainly from from a support standpoint, um, you, you know, something when you 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 always have that as you know you can reach out to to, to folks through esri if, if there's a question that comes up so it certainly helps from from that end and and i certainly use that often they have a um a, quite a, a a wide array of, of free webinars and and tutorials that, that have really helped me to be honest with you um and it's it, it's really been from practical um and, and two just from a from a standpoint of using that r1 you know they they work hand in hand so and that's another reason why I like that R1 in, in combination with ARC Online. As soon as you're in the field, um, you submit your data if you're working online and it's it's simultaneous to to ARC uh, Online. So it's, it's really um, uh, unique and, and, and certainly from an efficiency standpoint is what we've been talking about here, really, really hits and, and checks a lot of a lot of boxes for for me and in and, and my company and, and too from an education standpoint. So. Great. Thank you, Adam.
one last question I want to just dive into with a couple of folks, you know, is just, you know, right now with COVID-19, a lot of people are concerned about their jobs. If we're creating tools that are creating better efficiency in our workflow, you know, there are some people that have some concerns with that. And so one of the questions is, you know, in respect to this particular field requires a lot of experience. It requires a fair amount of training. And, you know, if you're not a taxonomist to be a really deep in on the soil side, to be able to bring one strong suite of tools to the table, is there, you know, is, you know, one of the questions that I hear come up sometimes in these conversations and has popped up in a few of the uh, chat bubbles here is, you know, will tech replace scientists? And so, you know, first I want to I'd love to hear from Todd from a from the perspective of an educator and a consultant as also as a as a you know professor at a university. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't think we're there yet. I think that we need people with expertise. Uh, we need botanists and ecologists and other natural resource professionals, um, really for the power of human observation. I think we are currently better than, than tech at, at observing the landscape and making decisions based on what we're seeing. Um, does the tech get there? Uh, I think we're a ways off. I, I think the positive that is uh, behind the tech is scientists. And so yeah. maybe the jobs are shifted some. Um, I, I, I'm a field ecologist, so I, I feel pretty strongly that we need people out in the field. Um, I know a lot of the GIS guys uh, think that they can do a lot, maybe more than they than I think they should uh, from the office. But uh, I think we still and always will need uh, people in the field making uh, personal observations to even to help feed that tech. Great, thank you, Todd. Well, and Scott, love to hear from you from the consulting side. Yeah, I mean, I uh, just to reflect on what Todd said. You know, mostly behind all of these things. I mean, I mean, just look at yourself, Jeremy. Scientists are building these things to help us, and that's, and that's great, and these are great tools to use, but professional judgment goes into a lot of what we do. Um, wetland delineation is not a, like a black and white thing, and you need to be able to go out there, see what something looks like in the spring, see what something looks like three weeks later, four weeks later. I mean, many of times I've gone to sites just to see progression, and that's just something that I don't think can be automated and automation is nothing new. I mean, it's been trying to take jobs for years, but there's nothing that to trial and error. I mean, we're creating these data sets for a long time. I mean, when you do research, it's not just, Hey, I went out there for this month and I looked at this. It's I went out every month for the last five years to build this huge data set to use it for everybody. And that's how we're building like, the NWI stuff. This is how we're base building on foundations of everything that we're using. So you still need professional judgment. You still need skilled people and you need to be able to train your skilled people also to be able to use these new technologies. Great, thanks Scott. And Kim, you wanna chime in? Yeah, I just wanted to give a real quick, a specific example uh, from the water management district. We were going to do some, use some satellite imagery to do some um, vegetation mapping, kind of our little test into you know, getting the AI all figured out. And uh, we set up some training data and it was, there's a couple individuals that these, this is an area I've been working in the wetlands for 30 years. So I kind of know them really well. And we were specifically wanting to map cattail. 
Um, and so the folks that were really good at, with the ArcGIS and NV software and things like that, and another person with um, using statistics said, okay, well, let's get these points down and figure them all out and see what it does. And I took a look at it as you know, someone who knows the ground and said, oh yeah, it's getting these parts wrong. And so we usually actually had to use me as a really integral part, substitute me for any one of you that has experience on the ground with the resource that you're working in to say, okay, this is what this is, this is what it is, and I trained the AI, so it could train itself. <laughs> so I think you really cannot take us out of it in different, and it's also different in different scales. So if you're doing something like drone work, you still have to have the person that's familiar with the area. So I think it's no way it's ever gonna uh, replace us, but it's gonna make us do our job a lot faster and we can do a lot more work. Great, thank you, Kim. And I want to yeah. come back and kind of end cap with with Amber because I know being down in the the Gulf, you know, there's a lot of people that have lost jobs in the oil and gas industry there. And you and I have been talking about that a lot over the last couple of years. But just kind of cap off, you know, where where do you sit when you're watching this whole thing from the perspective of is tech going to replace scientists? Yeah, 100% agree with what everyone said. There's no way that it could replace the professional judgment that we all have gained over the decades, you know, that we've been working in this field. I mean, it really ultimately is, you know, reducing human error. So, you know, of course, we're human, humans okay. err. So um, I think to round it off, yeah, I think technology is amazing and it's helpful. There's no way it could could replace us, at least not anytime soon. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. On the next episode, we'll hear from our panel of professional wetland scientists about their experience with integrating technology into their workflow. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how Ecobot is helping transform the industry and see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www.ecobotapp.com. And we'll see you next time.